Well, you can open this morning in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. We've been walking through the book of Jonah. Remember in chapter 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, right, and call out against it. And uh, you would expect a prophet of the Lord. You know, we saw from 2 Kings that this, this Jonah, the son of Amittai, is a prophet. He's a servant of the Lord. And when the word of the Lord comes to a prophet of the Lord, 99.9% of the time, the prophet can't help but speak the word of the Lord. Right? Amos said that. When the, when, the word, when the word comes to a prophet, who can but speak, Amos said. But not Jonah. Right? Jonah gets up to flee to Tarshish. He's going to flee in the opposite direction. His ultimate goal is to try to flee from the presence of the Lord. So he goes down to Joppa, goes down onto his ship, then goes down into the belly of the ship, and the Lord is not content with his servant fleeing. God disciplines those whom he loves, so he hurls this storm at Jonah, and the storm is growing more and more tempestuous, the text says. I don't know if that's a word I would, you know, typically tempestuous, but it's growing worse and worse, right? And so it becomes clear that this is Yahweh. This is the Lord pursuing His servant. This isn't any old storm. And so even the sailors are coming around to the knowledge of Yahweh. And Jonah says, you have to throw me overboard uh, in order for this storm to stop. Well, they don't want to do that, right? They just found out that Jonah serves Yahweh, the maker of, uh, of the land and the, and the sea. And why would they want to throw over the prophet of the God who sent the storm? And so they try to row there as best they can. They can't make it back. And eventually submit to Jonah's counsel. Pray to, pray to the Lord, right? Don't hold this against us. You're doing as you please. Throw him overboard. And, and by the end of 116, chapter 1, verse 16, like the, the sailors on the boat, Jonah, as far as anybody knows, it's game over, right? He's, he's sinking to the depths of, of the ocean. But God, in his mercy and in his grace, appoints. A fish, that's His sovereign grace, appoints creation to do His will. The fish rescues Jonah. And what you get in chapter 2 then was Jonah's prayer of thanksgiving, psalm of thanksgiving from the belly of the fish. He's thanking God because he had sunk down to the roots of the mountains. The, the, the bars of Sheol, the grave, they were closing in around him. Yet he remembered the Lord, he called upon the Lord, and the Lord immediately rescued him. And so chapter 2 ended with Jonah being spit out onto dry land. I like the way one author said it. It says, The fish obediently and doubtless gladly spews up this indigestible object and swims off with a flick of its tail, its distinguished mission accomplished. So Jonah 3, then that's where we are this morning, opens right where Jonah 1 Open. There's just all this uh, chaos that happened in between. So what we're going to do this morning is, is sort of what we did, uh, I think, in chapter 1. We're going to sort of overview the text, and then we're going to come back and see the theme of the text and, and see how it develops from the passage, and then we'll apply it uh, to our lives. So what, what we have in Jonah chapter 3, it really can be divided up into three parts. Okay, so you've got the first four verses there that deal with Jonah. And Jonah's given a commission again, and, and as a reader, we're wondering, how, how is Jonah going to respond this time? 
And then Jonah sort of fades from the scene in verses 5 through 9. It focuses on Nineveh and what they do with the message that was called out to them. And then verse 10 focuses on God's actions towards the Ninevites. So let's walk through that structure and the, again, and then we'll come back and highlight a couple themes that, that pop off the page uh, from, our, from our understanding of the text. So after being transported back to land, Jonah, as we said, is right back to where he started. In fact, 3-1 is almost, chapter 3, verse 1, is almost the exact same as chapter 1, verse 1. There's only a couple words difference between chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, and chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. And really, if, if you're just kind of reading this all the way through, I know we're taking three, four, five weeks to, to preach through this, but if you were just reading Jonah in one sitting, the words of 1-1 would still be ringing in your ear by the time you get to chapter 3, verse 1. And you're saying, oh, I recognize these words. And the repetition of the call to, to Jonah implies that Jonah is receiving an, a, a mercy here. He's receiving a second opportunity. A chance for him to obey. God has mercifully turned Jonah around and he is re-upping his commission given to Jonah from chapter 1. And so, really one of the, one of the few things that, that changes from chapter 1 to chapter 3 is that God just adds, hey, you're going to call out the message that I will tell to you. Jonah's going to receive the word of the Lord and he's going to relay it. That's what a prophet does. A, a prophet was designed to deliver the Lord's message, not his own. And this time, Jonah obeys, right? In, in the English, in chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, it was, it was the word of the Lord came to Jonah, but Jonah arose to flee, right? So, so in chapter 3, it doesn't say but, it says, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. Right? He, he does what the Lord commanded him to do, and he, and he acts, the text says, according to the word of the Lord. He's obeying according to the word of the Lord. Well, you know, Jonah still has some work that needs to be done, right? We'll see that in chapter 4. He's, his heart is not where his heart needs to be, but, but at least this time he doesn't get up to flee. There's sort of this rudimentary, this sort of basic fear of the Lord, at least, where he understands if I go this way, God's not going to let me go, go that way. We're also reminded in, in verse 3, something of what we saw in chapter 1. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. So we're reminded again of Nineveh's great size, Nineveh's great influence. It's not great because of its morality. In fact, we said it's, it's the opposite of that. It was greatly immoral. It was evil. It was wicked. They would boast of the violence that they would do. Things that we said probably wouldn't even be great to share in a sermon if you just went into detail into the violent acts that they committed. It's called great because it's, it's big and because it has influence. And, and there's a little bit, of, little bit of a hint here, I think, in where the, the text is going. Literally in the Hebrew, it says, the city is, is great according to God. It's great to God. It's great to the Lord. 
And, and, and it's, it's potentially, you know, sometimes that, word, that phraseology just means something like, it's a really big city. Like God considers it big, and if God considers it big, it's really big. But I think in Jonah, it's sort of a hint that God, God actually cares about this city. And he's going to act on behalf of, of the city. It's great to God in that sense. It's three days' journey in breadth, right? It's a, it's a, it's a big area. In chapter 4, God says there's 120,000 people in Nineveh. You know, take Rapid City and all the little surrounding cities and throw them all together, and you've got something the size of, of Nineveh. So Jonah arises and he goes to this great city, Nineveh. You know, the Bible moves so fast, it would have actually taken Jonah like a month to get there. Right? I mean, this is a long journey. We're talking several hundred miles, wherever, you know, we don't know exactly where Jonah ends up on the beach there, but from wherever that point is to Nineveh, which is like present-day Iraq, right? Um, that's That's a long walk. So it would have taken him a month to get there or so. Jonah arrives in verse 4, and he enters the city, and we finally get a glimpse of the divine message that's given to Jonah. And it's, it's quite brief. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. In 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Right? This is quite the warning. In fact, when the, when the Old Testament talks about what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, you know what word is often associated with that? It was overthrown. Sodom and Gomorrah was, was overthrown. They were completely and utterly devastated along with their citizens who were engaging in this wicked activity. And Nineveh is facing the same outcome. In 40 days, what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah is going to happen to Nineveh. Right? And so God puts this, this time stamp on it, 40 days. And again, that, I think that's sort of a hint that there's an opportunity in these next 40 days for you to turn, for you to, to repent, to reverse course. That's exactly what these type of prophetic warnings and announcements were meant to produce, a change of direction that, that, that produces a change of outcome. Right? If Nineveh will turn, then, then after 40 days, it, they won't be overthrown. That's the implication in, in the warning. We'll look at that more closely in a minute. Jonah, as a prophet, probably understood this. Right? That's why he wanted to run in the first place. So Jonah is fulfilling his obligation, but, but he, he does not want these Ninevites to repent. So what happens after verse 4, again, is Jonah sort of fades into the, into the background here, and we get to see what, will, what does Nineveh, what do these wicked, evil, violent people do with this message from this nasty old prophet who came from a whale's belly and walked a month? Well, we get that in verses 5 through 9. I think verse 5 would have shocked an Israelite reader who didn't know the story. And the people of Nineveh believed God. The people of Nineveh believed God. The citizens of of Nineveh do what Israel actually failed to do over and over and over again. In Deuteronomy 1, Israel is accused of not 
believing the Lord. And then you get to these wicked, violent Ninevites, and what do they do? They believe God. Like the, like the sailors in chapter 1, they're, they're quicker to come around than the prophets. Well, in chapter 3, Nineveh's quicker to come around than, than Israel. And not only do they believe in some kind of just adding knowledge to their, to their brains, this is, this is something deeper and more significant than that. Their belief is expressed by their actions. They call for a fast. They put on sackcloth, which would have been like this coarse code. It, it was sort of a, a symbol that they're rejecting the, the comforts and pleasures of this world by putting on this coarse furry coat that would just be uncomfortable. And this was a common way of expressing grief, of expressing humility, of expressing repentance. And the end of verse 5 says, says this, this attitude, it, it extended from the greatest of them to the least of them. From the most influential person in town down to the least influential person in town, from top to bottom. In fact, the king in verse 6, the, the king himself, which, which would have been like the ruler of, of the city, not necessarily the king of Assyria at this point. But the king in verse 6 acknowledges his role in all of this and his need to repent. He gets up off his throne, he replaces his royal robes with sackcloth, and he leaves his throne to sit down in ashes. Again, another way to demonstrate that he's just, he's just grief-stricken. He's stricken over his sin and sin's consequences. And so he, he, he sends out a decree along with, with his nobles, and, and, and it goes into all the city. This is how the, the whole city should respond. Every individual in the city should respond to Jonah's message. People and animals. Right? That's, that's kind of unique in Scripture, right? People and animals are to fast from food and water. And not not only is the king going to put on sackcloth and the the citizen is going to put on sackcloth, but go ahead and drape that over the animals too. And everybody together is going to call out mightily to God. What's going on here? I mean, we've sort of seen God as sovereign over creation, but we, we know that these cows in Nineveh aren't responsible for the sin of their owners. Well, well, well here's, what, here's, what, here's what the decree is, is going to do. It's going to go out and, and these, these animals are going to fast from food and water along with, along with the humans and, and they're going to be covered in sackcloth. And, and when they get hot and they get thirsty, there's going to be this, imagine in the huge city, all the livestock, hot, thirsty, hungry, they're going to be lowing and whatever animal noises cows and sheep make and it's going to be this great outcry before the Lord that Nineveh is in this desperate position. Meanwhile, you've got the humans who actually are responsible for their, for their own rebellion. They too are calling out with their voices. They're crying out to God. Together, it sort of creates this citywide just call to the Lord of this desperate situation that these Ninevites have found themselves in. But that's not, that's not all. Right, this, this religious expression of their grief was not sufficient. Right? They were to turn away. This is part of the king's decree. You need to turn away from your evil and your wickedness and your violence. You need to put it away. 
This is outward radical change and repentance, right? The, the rituals, fasting, praying, those did not go far enough. They were to turn away from their wickedness and their evil and their violence. And the king, again, he kind of sounds like the sailors in chapter 1. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. It sort of sounds like the captain of the ship who woke Jonah up and said, hey, why don't you try praying to your God? Who knows? Maybe the storm will relent. Right? He, there's, a, there's, a, there's a humility in the king's decree. He knows that he's not in a position to sort of command the Lord what to do like, or, or to negotiate with, with God and say, hey, God, if we do these three things, what do you think? Can we get some charges dropped here? He knows he's not in that position. He acknowledges God's right to do as he pleases. He understands that God is under no obligation to withhold the, his divine wrath and his divine judgment that, that Nineveh so rightly deserves. So he says, hey, who knows? Right? Israel, those who had the, the Old Testament written for them, they, 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 they understood that to repent means God's going to be gracious to them. But the king's just now learning, right? Like the sailors in chapter 1. Sure enough, verse 10, when God sees their repentance, it says that they turned from their evil way. God relented of the judgment that was coming. Look there in verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He said He would do to them, and He did not do it. So that's... That's chapter 3, right? 1 to 4, Jonah, 5 to 9, Nineveh's response to Jonah's message. Verse 10, what does God do? He relents. Now, as we think about that, that chapter, it, it's, very, it's very obvious that, that what's coming off the page is this idea of repentance. Repentance, and what does God do with Repentance. Right? We might say it this way, that God delights in repentance and chooses not to exercise His wrath wherever He finds it. God delights in repentance and chooses not to exercise His wrath wherever He finds it. So what we're going to do then is just look at, look at repentance, and then we'll look, secondly, at, I wish relentance was a word, you know, that would have made a great sermon. Maybe it is, I don't know, I didn't care that much to look at it, but... We're going to look at repentance and then God's response to their repentance. So what is, what is repentance? You know, I put that on your notes there. I, I, I really wanted a cool, pithy statement, but I just couldn't come up with one. So I, get, I got a long definition there because I didn't want to shortchange what it is. Repentance is a gift of God by which a person is given sight of, of the offense of their sin against God they're given a heartfelt sorrow over their preference for sin over God. And this results in turning away from the path of destruction and turning towards God Himself and His ways. All right, let's, let me say that again. Repentance is a gift of God by which a person is given sight of the offense of their sin against Him, a heartfelt sorrow over preferring sin to Him, and this results in turning away from the path of destruction and turning towards God and His ways. 
we see this idea of repentance in the text and that word, that word turn, right? Some of you if, you, if you have a certain translation, they might even translate that word turn as, as repent. It's, it's used here of, of the Ninevites. They're to turn from their wicked ways. Look in verse 8. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from, from the violence that is in his hands. So you see this word turn repeated a couple times in the text. Verse 10, it says, when God saw that they turned from their wicked ways, then he relented. So they, they turn from their sin and God relents of the disaster that he planned. Now, now there, is a, there is a place in the text where it says, hey, who knows, maybe God will turn and relent. It doesn't mean that God repents and, and that he was walking in wickedness and now has to walk in right. It's not, it's not that. It's that God chose a different path based on their response to him. Okay, so that word turn can be translated in context. We decide, does this, does this mean repentance or does it just mean take a different course? So, so how do we see in the Ninevites that they, they do repent, that they do turn in that spiritual sense from the path of destruction back towards God? Well, we, we said it's, it's a gift by which a person is given sight of, of sin, and that's what the Ninevites are given. They actually see their sin. And this comes how? It comes from hearing the Word of God. What we have in Jonah chapter 3 is both Jonah and the Ninevites confronted with the word of the Lord. We saw that in the the fact that Jonah's commission was repeated to him. The word that he disobeyed in chapter 1 is given to him again in chapter 3. He's given an opportunity to quit fleeing and now to walk in obedience to the Lord. Or as chapter 3 verse 1 says, to walk according to the word of the Lord. Now, Jonah has hard work to do, but he is, at least in going to Nineveh, obeying the word of the Lord. He's confronted with God's word a second time. We get a a less sort of muddled picture of, of this with the Ninevites. They're confronted with the word of the Lord. They're confronted by the prophet of God with with the message of God. You might expect verse 5 to read this way. And they believed the message of Jonah. Right? You might expect Jonah goes and he preaches, he calls out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. You might expect the next verse to say, and they believed Jonah. Much like somebody may walk out of church and say, Oh, I believed the preacher. But that's not that's not the goal. And that's not what verse 5 says. It says, and the people believed God. They, the Ninevites hear the words of Jonah, but understood that this was a divine message. God turned his, his word from his prophet into arrows and pierced the heart of, of the Ninevites. It was Jonah speaking, but they recognized God's voice through the prophet. Through Jonah's proclamation of the word of the Lord, the the, the light sort of came on, the light bulb came on, they see their true standing before the Lord of the universe. 
You see, the proclamation of God's message is what he used to give them a sight of their own sin and their own rebellion against Yahweh. And this is how the Lord works. It's how he worked through his prophet. And today, the Lord works through the, through the proclamation of his word. You know, it's not always fancy, right? Sometimes it, it, it's... it's it's not always entertaining, but as the word goes forth, the Lord uses his word to open eyes to the reality of sin and to the consequences of sin. I wonder if the Lord has been working on, on your heart. I wonder if you're, you're wondering, like, I remember when I first started going to church and the Lord was clearly drawing me to himself. I, I don't know. At what point I was like the light bulb went off and I was con- I was converted, but you know if you've if you're I remember asking myself like why am I giving up my Sunday mornings, <laughs> but I just continued to go and go and go and the Lord was was working in me and He eventually opened my eyes to see not only my own sin but the glory of the gospel in Jesus Christ. He saved me. It, 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 but if you've been if you've been drawn, I would just encourage you you know keep. Keep in the word. Keep reading the word. Keep coming and hearing the word. God uses the, the the reading and the proclamation of His word in miraculous ways. Right? God has revealed Himself in, in the word. This we don't we don't have prophets, right? Prophets, apostles. They they've ceased. We have the word of God. We have God's revelation of Himself in the Bible. And through the words of Scripture, He gives us sight not only into our our own sin, but He reveals Himself to us, convicting us of sin and calling us to Himself. So there's this sight of there's this sight of sin that then brings conviction. Right, the preaching of the word revealed sin, and through this came the conviction of sin. God produced in them an awareness not only of their sin, but of its consequences. And what's interesting is, is Jonah's message was simply one of impending judgments. And we said earlier that, that, that these calls of judgment were, in fact, warnings for people to turn. Turn from their wicked ways. Avoid the danger of, or, or avoid the danger ahead. You know, so we, we might... We might just say this then, as we talk about this warning of judgment that the Lord used to turn their hearts, that today in our, in our church or in our conversations, you know, to speak of sin or to warn about hell and the consequences of sin are not inherently unloving, right? Because something's hard to hear or because something's difficult to hear does not mean that it's an unloving thing to be proclaimed either from, from this pulpit or from Bible Hour or in a conversation. Now, these things have certainly and can certainly be done in, in unloving ways. And I remember when I was a student pastor, like the, so like this, this atheist organization called Skepticon uh, actually targeted Springfield, Missouri because they considered it the most religious city in the nation. Right, like the Assemblies of God headquarters is there, the headquarters of the Baptist Bible Fellowship are there. Like they're like, we're gonna do our atheist conference in Springfield because it's super religious. 
And so they rented this convention center. We, we were going to like part of this convention center to pack meals for like hungry kids as a youth group. And I didn't know like Skepticon was going to be there. So you got these atheists over here mocking Christianity. Then you got these Christian protesters with signs that are like, go to hell, you know, like on this side. And I'm sort of like walking through the middle. Like, I don't really want to be associated with either one of these, right? I mean, we're just here to feed hungry kids, all right? So it can be done in an unloving way. That's what I'm, that's what I'm saying. But warnings, warnings are, are, are ultimately meant to point to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You should heed the warning because there's hope in Christ to avoid what the warning consists of, separation from God forever. So the, the, the sight of sin then brings conviction of, of sin and it produced in them a godly grief. They, they demonstrate their sorrow through fasting, through putting on sackcloth, through crying out to God. What are they doing? They're demonstrating, and again, there was a way to do this in a fake way, but they're demonstrating the contrition of their hearts. Right? We know that Israel sometimes engaged in these sort of religious rituals, and, and they were chided by God to, to rend their hearts and not their garments, quit doing these outward signs of repentance when your heart is not actually repentant. They were just going through the motions. I think what we have in Nineveh, we'll see in a minute, is a godly grief. But we see from the warnings to Israel that there's a type of, of worldly sorrow that just wants to sort of avoid the consequences of sin, but is not truly broken over the reality and the weight of sin. Right? I don't mind the sin in itself. I just don't want to bear any consequences for it. I don't mind my rebellion against God. I just don't want him to act on it. That's a worldly sorrow that, you know, Paul talks about this, 2 Corinthians 7. He says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regrets, whereas worldly grief produces death. You know, Heath Lambert in his, in his book, Finally Free, his second chapter there, it's all about worldly grief versus godly grief. So I would, I would commend that chapter to you. We don't have time to walk through all of his uh, distinctions there, but he does say this. A, a sad person is consumed with world, let's just say, a person consumed with worldly sorrow is concerned about losing stuff, right? The consequences. Godly sorrow is pained over the break in relationship with God. It is heartbroken that God has been grieved and offended. Godly grief is concerned about a relationship with God. Worldly grief is concerned with nothing else but consequences. And what godly grief produces in a person is a hatred for sin and a desire to turn to the Lord. And that's what Nineveh does then is they turn away from their wickedness. They abandon sin. Right? The decree of the king comes down, yes, Fast, yes, sackcloth, yes, pray. But chapter 3, verse 8, the middle of that verse there, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. You know, as we've described Nineveh, we've, we've talked a lot about evil, we've talked a lot about violence. 
And so as the king gives this decree to turn away from your wickedness and your violence, it's, it's important for us to notice that this isn't just some vice that they wish they could kick, and now it's like, well, I guess this is as good a time as any. This was what they were known for. In, in, in the ancient Assyrian documents that have been found, they're boasting in their violence. This is how many heads I cut off and stacked into a pile. It's how many, well, never mind. The evil and the violence that they committed was the very thing that they were most proud of. This was their identity and their greatest boast. And now they've been called to turn away from it. And so these, you know, excuses, God is asking too much, this is who I am, this is the way that God made me, they don't fly when confronted with the word of of the Lord. We might say it this way, uh, to disobey God's word is to disobey God. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. He fled. He was disobeying God. And to obey God's word is to obey God. God will never contradict himself. I don't know, maybe you've miscommunicated with someone and they sort of obeyed your miscommunication. Right? Sometimes you'll say, no, you should have done what I meant, not what I said. Right? God doesn't communicate that way. He doesn't miscommunicate. He never means one thing and it has something else in His Word that He's revealed to you. So when we come across places in Scripture where we're, we're out of step, right? And we will. We're, we're, we're fallen. We're, we're, we're sinful. When you come across places in Scripture where you are out of step, we want to align ourselves with what God has already said and not come up with some kind of compromise to fool ourselves and say something like, well, God and I have an arrangement. Or again, this is who I am. This is my identity. This is the way God made me. God is asking too much here. They are simply not consistent with the God that we find as He has revealed Himself in Scripture. Nineveh here is asked to turn away from the very thing that they pride themselves in, the very thing that they boast in, the very thing that they love, they're called to give up and to turn away from and to repudiate. Willingly turn away from it. So Thomas Watson, the English Puritan, said there's, there's six aspects of genuine repentance. And I think we've, we see these things here in our, our text. It's a sight of sin. It's a sorrow for sin. It's a confession of sin. It's a shame for sin, it's a hatred for sin, and it's a turning from sin. Sight of it, sorrow over it, confession of it, shame for it, hatred for it, turning from it. This is what we see here in our text. And alongside all of these, then, these expressions of repentance, there is, there is an apprehension at least, like we said, sort of on a basic level of the availability of God's grace and mercy. That he might turn from his disaster that he has planned. Again, we saw that in verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. 
right? The, there, again, we talked about the humility there, the sort of beginnings of faith. They're beginning to see what Jonah knew and the reason Jonah didn't want to go in the first place that if you, if you believe God and you turn from sin, he relents of disaster. That's what Jonah said in, in chapter 4. He, he tells God, this is why I didn't want to go because I knew you were gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and you relent concerning disaster. That's why they didn't want to go. Now again, Nineveh's just learning. So what do they, what do they end up doing? They, they fully rely on God's character. They just throw themselves at God and say, He is our only hope. Right When it says they believed God, one commentator said this, The Hebrew idiom denotes more, however, than just believing what someone has said. It expresses the idea of trusting a person. They not only believe the message, they not only believe it is from God, but by their response, we see that they throw themselves at the mercy and character of God. Sinclair Ferguson said it this way, we dare not approach Him without repentance, but we become morbid if we fail to reach out for His grace. They sense this this availability of, of grace to them. If we turn, perhaps God will be kind to us. And how does God respond to this belief accompanied with repentance? He relents of the disaster that He warned of. Look again there in verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God repented or relented sorry, of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. So God relents, right? The warning had done its work. The people had turned away from their evil. This refers to, uh, again, we mentioned this earlier, a decision to act otherwise. It doesn't necessarily imply that God was going to do one thing, but He found a better thing. It's not that. It's that He chose a different path. He, He did not He he did not do a U-turn because he found the righteous way. No, God by His very nature is unable to approve of sin, unable to uh, have a dismissive eye towards sin, and by His very nature, He relents of judgment when people repent of their sin and call upon Him for mercy. So it's not that God is just sort of bouncing around, changing, depending on what people are doing. God doesn't change, but He he, he relents according to His very nature. That's who He is. He's a God who's holy, righteous, and just, and He's a God who relents of disaster when people repent. So again, let's look to the text. First, how do we see God relenting? Well, first we see God's patience in the way that He deals with Jonah. When Jonah obeys, God is no longer pursuing him with that disciplining grace or what we called severe mercy. He's no longer hurling the storm. He's no longer appointing the fish. He, Jonah is going on his way and he's not under the disciplinary hand of the Lord. He'll get that again in chapter 4. This is actually a display of the patience and mercy of God. He is determined 
God has determined that his prophet will not flee, that his prophet will not remain in disobedience. He is jealous for Jonah. For Jonah, not of Jonah. Right? I may have said this before, but I remember Oprah saying one time, God is jealous of me? That's kind of when I stopped serving God. I'm like, no. He's not jealous of anyone. He's jealous for people. He, he wants their worship because that's what they're designed to do, to worship and glorify Him. God is jealous for Jonah, not that He needs Jonah. God could have sent the whale to preach the message. He doesn't need anybody. He desires Jonah to be faithful and fruitful for the glory of God and for Jonah's good. You know, the illustration that sort of came to my mind is a parent who desires his child to obey. Right? Mom and dad understand that it's best for their child to obey. So they, they desire and they're willing to discipline their children. Why? Because it's for the, the child's good, even when the child doesn't understand. It's, it's for their own good. That's what God does in His disciplining grace. He acts on our behalf for our own good, even when we don't understand what good is. God brings Jonah, literally brings him by his own sovereign authority to a place of obedience. So, how about with the Ninevites then? Well, the, the, the warning moved people to belief and repentance, and that resulted in the judgment being removed. The sight of sin, the conviction of sin, the turning from sin, the sorrow. Right? That, was, that was God's gracious work in them through the warning. And this is the way we said earlier, these types of warnings were meant to work in the Bible. Listen to Jeremiah 18. In verse 7, it says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, right, that's the disaster, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. If any nation has promised this judgment and they turn, I will relent of the disaster. I was surprised this week to, to read these words from Alice Cooper, the famous rock star. Now, again, I should give my blanket like celebrity conversion, you know, like whatever, you know, who knows? I'm not baptizing him up here. I'm not saying for sure, but here's what he said, though. I came to Christ because of my fear of God, right? I came to Christ because of my fear of God. The warning did its work in his heart. He said, I totally understood that hell was not, let's say, doing drugs with Jim Morrison. Hell was going to be the worst place ever. In fear, I came back to the Lord. He says, but then I, then I began to, to hear of the love of Christ and those two things together. He says, I don't, I, don't, I don't forget his words. Yeah, it was exactly right. All right, not, maybe not the way we would say it. But what happened? What is he saying? The warning paved the way for understanding the grace and mercy and, and love available in Christ Jesus. The warning did its work. Now, some have, some have tried to argue that they don't believe the repentance of the Ninevites was genuine. You know, within a couple centuries of Jonah's 
preaching, the wicked king of Assyria, Sennacherib, which, which we've talked a lot about in, in Bible hour, he'd be assailing the walls of Jerusalem. The man hailing from the region of Nineveh was back to evil and, and violence. So was Nineveh's repentance genuine? Well, in, in Luke chapter 11, you can turn there if you want. You don't, you don't have to, but I'll try not to spend too much time here. We've but in Luke chapter 11, Jesus doesn't seem to judge these Ninevites based on their descendants. He says, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Verse 32, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus seems to affirm the legitimacy of their repentance. You know, last week we saw that Jonah was a sign of the resurrection. Jonah was in the belly three days, three nights. Jesus was in the tomb. Jesus was resurrected from the grave. This week in Luke, you actually see that the Ninevites are a sign of, of judgment against, uh, against the Israelites. Jesus has come preaching the message of repentance. Jonah was sent to his, his arch enemies, the ruthless Ninevites, known for violence against God and his people. He proclaimed to them that in 40 days they would be overthrown and they responded by repenting, yet Jesus' audience did not repent. Jesus came into his own, his own received him not. Israel rejected Jesus, even though the Ninevites received the message. And so Jesus actually highlights the wickedness of, of Israel. They heard, and then of a heard from a reluctant prophet, and they repented. The crowd had a much greater demonstration, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus was in their midst, yet they did not repent. So it's hard for us, I think, to, to grasp the stinging rebuke of Jesus saying Gentiles came, to, responded to the message of God, right? But that would have been a stinging rebuke for Israel. In Jonah, we see then these, these shadows of this, the mystery of the gospel, that the gospel will go to the nations. Jonah is ultimately about the kind-hearted mercy of God on display towards those who will repent of their sin and trust in Christ. So one last thing, one last thing and then we'll be done. There's one lingering question here that we should resolve. What about all the violence and the evil of the Ninevites? What about all that they did before they repented? Is this a message of, you know, clean up your act and he will pretend like those things never happened? You know, whatever happened to the unchanging nature of God by which we must punish wickedness and cannot turn a blind eye? Does repentance just sort of say like, okay, well, don't worry about that. If you do good from here on out, you'll be fine with the Lord. Well, not surprisingly, we find our answer in Jesus Christ. 
The New Testament tells us that God passed over former sins, anticipating that the debt of those sins would actually be poured out onto Jesus Christ. So it wasn't that God did not care about their former wickedness and evil when He relented of their disaster. Instead, He patiently waited for centuries till He could pour out that wrath onto Jesus Christ. You might think of it like a credit card. When I buy gas, I can put it on my credit card. I'm purchasing the gas. I'm free to go. The gas station has been paid, but the bill will not come till the end of the month. So we're not going to say that the Ninevites' bill for all their wickedness was, was not paid, it's not delinquent, it's that it was, it was postponed till it was poured out onto Jesus Christ. So the sin debt of those who trusted in God and experienced His grace and mercy prior to the cross, their bill was paid in Jesus Christ. God didn't pretend as, as if their sin was no big deal because of their repentance, Instead, He demonstrated mercy because of their repentance. He relented of judgment and eventually poured out that judgment on Jesus Christ. Now, we are in a different era. We look back at the work of Christ. Jeff's going to talk about that in just a a second. We see that He's already dealt decisively with our sins. We're not not recurring. We're, We're not storing up debts to be poured out later. Instead, it's already been absorbed in Jesus Christ. And it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Right? It's the kindness of God in Jesus Christ that should motivate us to repentance. Well, that's somebody who is naming the name of Christ, following Christ, and you see sin in your life, you're confronted with sin, you turn from it, you remind yourself of the hope of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Or whether that's someone who, who does not know Christ. When we see that that, that sin has cost the Son of God His very life. That it took His sacrifice to pay our debt. It should motivate you. Throw yourself at Him. Rely fully on Christ. We said the Ninevites, Ninevites relied fully on the character of God. If you don't know Jesus this morning, see your sin and run to Christ. Rely fully on Him. He paid the price for all who would trust in Him and turn to Him. And it should move us Christians to learn to hate our sin, to sorrow over it, to turn from it, and to look to God for growth in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank You for Your kindness. Thank You that You grant the gift of repentance. Thank You that Your kindness leads us to repentance. May we rejoice in Christ. May we be thankful and remember His sacrifice even as we get ready to sing about it and then observe communion. In Jesus' name, amen.